Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we meet and who we give endless glory for infinite ages. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the worship of your saints and angels as we gather together. May you please speak powerfully to us of your Son by the power of your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All you can eat for free, this night only. Black Friday. What do we do when we hear that? Why is it that capitalising, that's a deliberate choice of word, on every opportunity, however small, however kind of irrelevant, is what tends to run at least our consumer society? Why do we feel we just must buy that thing? When the sale must end tomorrow. Or use that free coupon before it expires. Anyone got one of those in their fridge? Oh, we've got to make sure we use that before it runs out. We're deeply motivated by that. That's why they do it. I know I worked in marketing. Scarcity, it's a thing. You create it so that people do it. So you nudge them and make them do something they perhaps wouldn't have done otherwise. Maybe none of us have got into a punch-up. You've seen those videos of Black Friday? Usually somewhere other than this country, but no comment or whatever. Like, uh, maybe we're not doing that. But if we're suddenly given a window, it becomes less significant, the thing we're actually getting, than maximising this opportunity we've been given. That is the Corinthians. They see a window, they go for it. And we're still, if you were with us two weeks ago, we're still in the eating food, sacrifice to idols thing. Because that goes deeply into how we interact with each other, even if we've never consciously eaten food sacrificed to an idol. Though, as I said, anything we buy from Amazon is basically that, isn't it? This goes into how we understand our rights, which is a big deal for this country. Yeah, it was a specific situation with the meat thing. Basically, if you wanted to eat meat in Corinth, it was probably sacrificed to an idol. So it's like, it's really, am I going to be a vegetarian or not? That's kind of the problem. But we didn't spend much time on how Paul says you actually have to be wise in this situation. We just sort of laid out the overall idea of how you act affecting other people. Today he goes into detail how you actually do that. And he talks about himself. And also Barnabas, who's kind of there in the background. We get a lot more detail around all these questions of power opportunity rights that our culture is so preoccupied with. So we'll take the first 14 verses. It's our first chunk. Do open your Bibles if you close them or get it up on your phone. It will help a lot if you've got it in front of you this morning. Verse 1 to 14. Serving Jesus for others gives power. Serving Jesus for others gives power power. Verse 1 to 6, Paul explains, just in case they've forgotten, what it means to be an apostle by asking them loads of questions that will probably make them sort of look down and look at their shoes and feel a bit ashamed. He reminds them, you're worshipping a dead Judean nobody as the resurrected Lord of the cosmos because you heard about him from me. So just pipe down about my credentials for a moment. (laughs) But verse 3, Paul goes further than just that because of a particular way that he served among them as an apostle 
that they're starting to question. Now, the word authority gets used a lot in this passage. It's there, verse 3. It's actually, sometimes it's translated as a different thing, but it's the same word all the way through. It seems there are people telling the Corinthians they shouldn't pay much attention to Paul because he didn't charge them money or food for preaching to them. They say no one who has the right, the authority to expect financial backing would dream of passing it up. So you must just not have the clout to deserve it. That's the accusation. We actually discover how this worked in Acts chapter 18, verse 3. Paul rocked up to Corinth, discovered Priscilla and Aquila, who were also tent makers, lived with them. I mean, it's a famous thing, isn't it, being a tent maker? Paul worked with his own hands to fund his own preaching to Corinth. It's recorded for us in the Bible. So he weaves this question mark that's arisen about whether he's the genuine article into this issue the Corinthians are getting tangled up in about how you interact with the world and what they're into. Now, believe it or not, there are 14 questions that Paul asked them rhetorically in this section. He really goes to town on establishing the power, authority, opportunity, the rights he actually does have as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, the key actual rights are there, verse 4 to 6, do you see that? Things like eating in their homes and bringing a wife and possibly kids along with them, who also get supported. If you want to know, these verses are the primary basis of me getting a stipend and having somewhere to live. That's where it comes from. The parish share we pray as three churches goes into a shared account with all the churches in the diocese, particularly our deanery, which is like our local area of churches, 62% of that money that we're asked to supply goes towards me, my family, all the other clergy in the diocese, having a roof over our heads, having enough food and having enough clothes. There are self-supporting ministers, tent makers in this diocese. Church of England has increasingly been relying on them, people who do what Paul decides to do here. But that's not the way it should be. And that's not because I'm an apostle, I really am not. It's because of verse 14, do you see that? The same way the Lord ordered those who preach the good news, so bigger than just apostles, should be supported by those who benefit from it. That's the principle. Now, that's the primary New Testament basis for that, these verses. But do you see, through the whole passage, Paul actually goes back to the Old Testament for the same idea. He says a lot of those random laws about oxes and things are actually for us today... And Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, that says, don't muzzle an ox as it's working with food. It's not about oxen. That's symbolically looking ahead to this. There's a whole system of priests literally eating what people offer to God. The sacrifices didn't just, you know, get burnt. The priests went and ate them. You, you brought a cow to the temple. It, it got killed and then butchered. And then that was the priest's Sunday roast. That, that was how he ate. You didn't eat unless you did that. And he says, verse 13, that practice in the Old Testament is foreshadowing what happens now. All of this to say, it's not possible to argue that people who preach Jesus to us faithfully should do so for free. That's a lot of work Paul's gone to to establish that point. 
Now, verse 12, there are abuses. He hints at that with these others who charge. There's something called the prosperity gospel you may have heard about, often on televangelists or megachurches, where people lie from the pulpit saying, if you fund my private jet, that'll twist God's arm and mean you get what you want financially or good health or whatever. That is a horrible, greedy distortion of truth. But even with that abuse, ruling that out, you can't get out of this being the pattern for how Christians live together and are served by Jesus' ministers. It's expected by Jesus to be a full-time job for some people from which they can reasonably expect to be fully supported for their daily needs. Serving Jesus for others gives power. But, verse 15 to 22, serving Jesus for others limits power. Serving Jesus for others limits power. The reason Paul has pushed this point so hard for all those verses is so that they feel the power of what he's chosen to do. Verse 15. (coughs) Yet I have never used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. Now, in the New Testament, we have examples of churches Paul did receive support from. This isn't a blanket principle. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, he restates his policy with them by saying, I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. This issue doesn't go away for them. They don't listen the first time he tells them. The reason he's not charging these specific people is for their good. And this next bit is where it really hits the road for us. This is the deep thing for us. The boast he wants of not preaching without charge is not some kind of masochism or because doing this earns him brownie points for God. He's been commanded to preach the gospel, whether he gets paid or not. Verse 16. Verse 17. I I wonder, in my mind, this obviously breaks with everything that's been gone before. I think it's a bad translation. Okay, so uh, just if you were wondering, what on earth is that about? You know, if if I were doing this on my own, I deserve payment. When did we ever hear anyone deserving payment? That's not right. That's not what it says. Uh, That's like Paul being a vigilante or something. It's like, aha, I've decided I'm going to go and preach the gospel, which means everyone should pay me for it. That doesn't really, that's not what it says, okay? Uh, So the, the thing that he's actually saying here is if I do this willingly, preaching the gospel, I have a wage. And if unwillingly, I've still done what God asked me to do, How I feel about it is not the point, is the thing he's making there. He's saying, I've made a choice to preach to you for free. And as I do that, I'm giving you an example of a principle for the whole of the Christian life. He's moving out of what apostles do now. And he's saying, this is an example of something you need to do too. 
He's not interested in what people think of him by doing that or what they pay him, whether they pay him or not. That's not the point. And he says, that's the only thing you are interested in. The only thing you can see here is who's like the the top tier preacher by how much they charge. They're only interested in whether they get to exercise their full rights of eating meat or doing what they want sexually or getting married or not getting married. They're only interested in fulfilling that little window, maximising the bargain, getting to express themselves, to be given their rights. Paul says, if you act like that, you are missing the real wage of the Christian life. The greatest wage, payment, we can ever receive as Christians is deliberately missing out on something we're owed so more people see Jesus' beauty in our lives. That means Paul lives in different ways when he's with people who aren't the Corinthians. So verse 22, looking through, sometimes he will behave in this weak way that the Corinthians are looking down upon in order to make them feel comfortable and to show them the goodness, even though he doesn't have to. Sometimes he'll do the opposite. He'll go back to his old ways as a Pharisee, just so that those people don't ignore him. Because if he didn't do that, he'd seem to them to not be taking God seriously. But then he does the opposite again, verse 21. With Gentiles like them, he squashes his inner preference to live like a redeemed Jew So they won't get the idea that him doing that is what saves them. Now, Paul isn't necessarily saying the Corinthians have to do exactly that. The thing he wants them to do comes in the next bit. He's giving from his own life an extreme example of something he's been saying all along. When we have the right to do something, or the authority or the power, it's the same idea, but doing it endangers the faith of other Christians or people who are about to be Christians, it's best not to use that right. Serving Jesus for others limits power. I've really been praying this week about what that means for us in Bungie. What could we not do that we're allowed to do to demonstrate to people in Bungie that Jesus means business? What is Bungie or our wider culture obsessed with that we could show we're not obsessed with, even though we're free to enjoy it or to participate in it? Would people be encouraged to take Jesus seriously if we said something different from the world about history, choosing to be celibate, what we demand from employers or politicians, climate change, our interactions online. Serving Jesus for others limits power. Last verses, verse 23 to 27. Forgoing our rights defeats our inner enemy. 
Forgoing our rights defeats our inner enemy. As a gear change to another benefit of deliberately foregoing a right. These verses, so much is, is derived from this chapter. I've really been struck by that in Christian tradition across the world and down the ages. These verses are the bedrock of a really rich and almost forgotten tradition in the church across the world and through the ages. Uh, it, it's a bit of a weird word. I'm going to say it because there isn't a better one. Uh, the word is asceticism. Asceticism. Now, when we hear that, if we even know what it means, we might think of Buddhist monks living on like a grain of rice a day. Or, you know, more recently, you remember David Blaine sitting on the top of a pillar in Trafalgar Square? Do you remember that? <laughs> like, oh dear. <laughs> like, uh, but, but the word is what Paul talks about when he mentions, verse 25, 27, athletes being disciplined in their training. The word ascesis means discipline, training. He's not deliberately going without things that would make his life more comfortable, just so more people hear about Jesus, verse 23. That is a reason, verse 23. I do everything to spread the good news, but then the end of it, and so I can share in its blessings. Jesus saves us to live this way. As we've heard, the normal human experience is maximising our opportunities. And if we're British, making sure people don't see us do it. Isn't it? It is like that, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to make everything good for me, but look like I'm being really humble. That, that's, let's be honest about that. We create a good space for ourselves to have maximum comfort, even if somewhere that means other people lose out. That is the whole of Western civilization, isn't it? That is what our fleshly bodies, our passions, as the church fathers described them, are constantly demanding of us. Maximise benefit for yourself. Cram as much good stuff into your day as possible. And maybe that benefit is being really charitable or doing lots of nice things for other people. If it's what we want, maximise your opportunity. It's the same thing. It's, it's not like, you know, doing good stuff can be this too. <laughs> and the Corinthians have discovered a theological way to justify carrying on the way they always have. We all naturally do that. We don't have to fast or train or study or pray or give a good chunk of our income away to be a Christian. So we can pass on those things with a clear conscience. That's what they're saying. But the real rewards of the Christian life come when we use our freedom to limit our freedom. When the choice we make is to forgo something we're entitled to in obedience to something Jesus is calling us to. And I think we do have to talk as a church about fasting because it's so practical. We deliberately don't eat something we really like, even though we're allowed to. And the effect is to train our bodies. Verse 24, I've always, this is the first time I've ever got this this week. I've always wondered, why is Paul talking about like a Christian competition? He's racing against the Corinthians and trying to win. Aha, I've been a better Christian than you. That doesn't make sense, does it? That's stupid. No, the person he's racing is himself. There's a Paul that wants his own comfort at the expense of everyone else. We've all got someone like that living in us, haven't we? That's the Paul that was a Pharisee. 
He had the great pleasure of knowing he was doing a better job than anyone else at keeping the Torah. The way that Paul gets beaten and the Paul Jesus has recreated and is preparing for eternity wins is by Paul deliberately not being a good Pharisee for the sake of all these Gentiles he's telling about Jesus, by deliberately not gaining status as a celebrity preacher, by doing it for free in the city where doing that makes you a laughingstock. We gain something spiritually by living this way. We don't need to be afraid of that. Yes, we're saved by grace, but there are ways for us to grow as Christian people. Spiritual pride is kept at bay because it's an internal struggle. Only we know the things we most feel we have a right to. Only we know what is going without those things will most train and discipline our passion. Sometimes doing that will mean others are better able to see Jesus in us. But that's not the only reason to do it. This way of life, fasting privileges out of love and reverence for Jesus, changes us in a profoundly deep way. My prayer is we can begin to explore what this means together as a church. Perhaps starting with Lent next year, let's just see what could we do as a church? What could we give up that we're allowed to have so that we learn this discipline and grow as Christian people? Serving Jesus for others gives power. Serving Jesus for others limits power. Forgoing our rights defeats our inner enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is hard for us. You put your finger on the areas of our life that we most want to leave untouched. Please, would you show us those things that we are allowed to do, but by giving them up, we can serve others and serve your purposes for us. In Jesus' name, amen.